Welcome to the Vineyard Church Weekly Message Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and challenged today as you listen to a message from one of our speakers. Prepare your heart and get ready to receive a word from God today. So I am super excited to hear from Dr. Randy Smith today. Uh, Randy is a Bible teacher. He's a pastor. He's an archaeologist. He's a study tour guide. He's so many different things. And Randy has been at Vineyard a few different times. Um, He's preached a couple times. He has taught us the book of Revelation. Anyone attend that Revelation seminar? Yeah, quite a few of you. You all understand it now, right? Yes, after six hours with Randy, I totally get it. Thank you. Uh, But a few of us in the room know Randy uh, in a different kind of way. We went to Israel with him, spent 12 days trying to keep up with him, both mentally and physically, trying to keep up with him. He walks really fast, just so you know. Uh, But it, that trip for me was... uh, really the trip of a lifetime. And so what I figured out is if you're going to go to Israel, you should go with someone who is a deep Bible teacher, who knows the word of God, but who is also an archaeologist. Because that just makes all the difference to understand the culture, to understand the archaeology, to understand all of that makes a huge difference in how you understand the word of God and apply it to your life. And so I want to encourage you, if you did not go in April, there is still a chance. In April of 2025, so a couple years from now, uh, we have signed on to go again to Israel with Dr. Randy Smith. And so if you're interested in that uh, and you want more information along the way as we begin to put that out, I'm going to encourage you to scan the QR code in front of you or you can stop by the booth in the atrium where we have people who went on that trip. They can sign you up, but also if you have questions, they can answer those questions. So encourage you to do that, to at least consider it. So here's the thing. When I was considering introducing Randy Smith, there's too many things about him to talk about. I just can't talk about it all. Uh, and so I'm just going to tell you to Google him. And Dr. Randall Smith, Google him and you'll find out all you need to know. But for me, what I really do want to share is that over the last few years, Randy has become a friend, a dear friend, someone who has helped me appreciate and understand the Bible in new and different and deeper ways. He has a kind heart, a wonderful soul. He's deep. He just is, uh, he really is a friend who has helped me to look at the scripture in a way that has changed my life. So please welcome Randy Smith. They say they save the best for last. You're the last stop I have before I head back over to the Middle East. And um, I've been traveling around doing youth conferences and a bunch of things. I don't know why they invite me. Nothing about me says youth, but I go, and they're good enough to have me, and I I really do love what I do. But, you know, as I've been traveling around, I've been meeting people, and they keep coming up with this phrase. I keep hearing, you know, increasingly walking with Jesus just seems like it's getting more difficult. People will say to me, you know, whether it's creating a ministry or, or living a testimony or trying to raise godly kids, people will say there just seems to be a lot more pushback and, and there's a lot more conflict. But the truth is, it's always been that way. I, I can take you this morning, and I'd like to, to Mark chapter 1 
to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry as it's told by the Gospel of Mark. And Mark is trying to let you know that from the beginning, Satan jumps on the back of Jesus and pummels him. There was no break. There was no easing in. There was just a hard start. Now, I don't know a lot about boxing, but I've watched enough to know it's not all about the fists. It's also about the feet. It's about the ability to move around and not get hit. And, and that's the reason why a boxer's whole body needs to be in shape in order to do a good job in a fight. And, and I don't know if you know this or not. Many of you, I know, know it by experience. When you came to know Jesus, you joined a fight already in progress. So you're in it, whether you're blocking for it or not, the punches are flying. And the fact is that you are up against someone who's a master at this. Now, what he's going to do is try to use you against you or others against you. And he's throwing punches constantly. And you've got to learn how to receive those punches and how to block so that you're not getting pummeled. And here's the key. Here's the thing I want you to take away this morning. Satan is a combo puncher. Whenever you get hit and you feel it, Plan on getting hit again right after and right after and right after. He doesn't throw a single punch because that's not enough to devastate you. He's not in the business of inconveniencing you. He wants to crush you. And to do that, he's got to pummel you. Now, how do I learn to block? How do I learn fancy footwork that's going to keep me out of trouble? So I want to take you to the beginning of Mark's gospel, and Mark delivers the Savior's ministry startup. Now, we've got to set the scene just a little bit. Um, Mark is one of four books. We don't have in the New Testament a life of Jesus. What we have are four what the early church called evangelists. These are like evangelistic tracks when tracks were so big you could choke a mule with them. That's just back in the day. Now, now, each one has a different bend. Matthew gives you the words of Jesus. So there's more words of Jesus in Matthew than any other gospel. Mark, in contradistinction, gives you the works of Jesus. He's less interested in what he said, the sermons, than the healings and the actions and what he did. And then Luke, in his first four verses, says, a lot of people wrote down what he said and did. I want to put it in order for you. And so chronology is Luke's job. About 30 years after those first three Gospels are written comes John. He's the last man standing and he's the last quill writing. All the other guys are dead in the first generation. And he writes about Jesus' conflicts with the Judean aristocracy or the seminary profs at Temple U in Jerusalem. Why is Jesus always in trouble? So each of them have a different bent. But the four Gospels were not written to give you a history of Jesus. They, they were given to, to tell you how to model after the pattern of Jesus. See, Christian means little Christ, follower of Christ. So when I, I have to model what Christ modeled. A Christian is not a subculture. It's, it's not a theology. It's, it's not a tradition of how to sing or do church. Christianity at its core is knowing, loving, and obeying the person of Jesus, counting on the work of Jesus on the cross to take away your sin and put you in good relationship with his Father, your Creator. That's what it is. That's what it's always been. And the problem is that 
we have to learn the pattern that Jesus gave us from the Gospels in order to know how to pull it off. Now, I want to be clear about something. Jesus didn't call you to leave your friends and your family and go off to some monastery somewhere and read old manuscripts. I mean, that might be part of your call, but for most people, that's just not it. There are people right in this room who are serving Jesus in many ways. Maybe you're a tender-hearted, sensitive missionary type who's dealing with people who are struggling with addictions, and you are cleverly disguised as a high school English teacher. Or, or maybe you are an ambassador for Jesus, trying to show some people how Jesus dealt with relationships at the local supermarket as a checkout clerk. Maybe you're a spokesman and a model for Jesus to a gender-confused colleague who's working with you, and you're, discover, you're, you're cleverly disguised as a guy from the IT department. So whatever you are, if you name Jesus as your Savior, you have a job. And your job is not to put up placards and run around and give everybody a political party that will save the nation. That's not your job. We have a Savior. His name's Jesus. Your job is to reflect Jesus. You bring Jesus to every job, in every relationship, every day. That's your job. But because we do, we also have to admit that we have signed on and volunteered to follow the pattern that Jesus gave us. We take the record of what the Bible says about Jesus and we go out and live it. For a Christian, I don't make my decisions. Jesus does. I submit my decision-making to him. Now, Jesus fought and won against the enemy. I, I want to skip a stone lightly across five stories in Mark chapter 1, just quickly. And I, I want to come back and understand how did Jesus do what he did. So let's start at verse 1 because it's a great place to start at the beginning. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Mark wanted to open up, and did you notice that the opening line is, this is good news, gospel. But not only is it good news, Jesus is the Son of God. That's a given for the rest of the story. And not only that, but his story didn't start with him. It started with his cousin John, who was sent all the way back at the time of Isaiah. It promised that there was going to be this guy who was going to come and prepare the way. If you look at all four Gospels, you learn that John is an old guy with a weird diet and an eccentric wardrobe, but a humble spirit. He's an oddball. Let's give it up for the oddballs among us, right? So he's just, he's a different guy. And one day, John was preaching repentance, and people were coming down to the Jordan River, and he was standing in the Jordan in the water, and he was saying, come on down in the water and show that God has cleansed your heart by getting wet. Now, in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes breaking from the back of the crowd and comes down to the water and says, okay, I'm in line to get baptized. And in Matthew's account, Matthew says that Jesus wasn't wanted there. John didn't want him there because he said, you don't have any sin you need to be dealing with. What are you doing here? But the interesting thing is the way Mark tells the story. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he says it this way. In those days, Jesus went from Nazareth, where he grew up in Galilee, 
and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And you go, well, that's nice. That's a nice story about how God loves his son. Let's go home. But that's not the point of the story. See, two of the gospels, Matthew and Luke, didn't start with the baptism and John. It started with Christmas. You remember the Christmas story. You got Mary in Bethlehem with Joseph having a baby and out on the hillside a bunch of shepherds and God sends a contingent to block the sky. They're called the heavenly host. That's the word for for army. They are not there to pose for a Hallmark card picture with a harp. They're actually an army. They're guarding the baby. See, because in the spiritual warfare of what was going on, God was sending his son, and the enemy didn't like it, but the enemy couldn't figure out which one he was. So, when Herod the Great found out that the next king that was going to be born was born in Bethlehem, Satan whispered in his ear, go kill all the babies two years old and under in Bethlehem. Why do you suppose he did that? Because in the Bible, that's how it works. This life that we're living is the symptomatic expression of reality that is spiritual. The real world is a spiritual world. The physical world is the response or symptom of it. So you see a corrupt politician, but you don't see behind him he is being puppeted by a much more devious, powerful enemy. And so Satan loses track. God whispers into Joseph's ear, get the baby out of here. They go to Egypt and Satan doesn't know where he is. So by the time you get to Mark chapter 1, and Jesus is announcing, here he is, God is disclosing the guy who's been in witness protection identity. He's taking the gloves off and saying, there he is. And the very next thing Jesus will face is the temptation. As soon as Satan identifies him, he jumps on him like white on rice and he won't let him go. And all the gospels pick up that temptation story. Now, Here's a principle that we should know. When the enemy finds a threat, he moves against the threat. He doesn't move against those who offer no resistance. So if you're sitting here going, I don't know what this guy's going on about. I haven't faced any resistance at all. It might be because you haven't clearly declared a side. Satan doesn't pick on you until you got something to offer. Okay? So honestly... A lot of this is very much what we see in ministry today. A pastor starts working with a group of people. There's growth and there's progress in church ministry. And the enemy just starts coming out of the closet in every direction. There's physical issues. There's all kinds of issues that come in. So what did Jesus do to respond to the enemy? Because that's what the story is about. Remember, Satan's a combination puncher. So look for the first punch. The first punch is found in verses 9, 10, and 11. And the first punch is called confusion. So it says, verse 12, immediately the Spirit brought him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. So he no sooner gets 9, 10, 11 up out of the baptism, and 12 to 14, he's stuck right in the middle of the temptation. 
Now, if you were to look at it in Mark chapter, uh, in Matthew chapter 4, you'd find the longer view of the temptation is really a story about one thing. Jesus, you want to get famous? You want people to know who you are? How are you going to get famous? How are you going to be made known? And Satan will take him to different places, even the pinnacle of the temple, which is town square for Jerusalem. Why don't you throw yourself off and do something cool? You'll get caught by angels and everybody will follow you. And you're sitting there thinking, now why is Satan trying to help Jesus get followers? That doesn't make any sense. See, sometimes the issue isn't the what, it's the how. Satan is trying to get you to do even God's will your way. God's will in a way that's not the way he has prescribed it in the scriptures. So Jesus has lost his witness protection identity. He's getting pummeled by the enemy. And God never, never, this is the point, God never promised you that if you follow him, your life will be more comfortable. That's not the promise. There's people out there telling you that if you follow Jesus, your blues will be bluer, your greens will be greener, and Bambi will eat in your yard. And it's not true. It's not true. If that were true, God owes an apology to the martyrs. The truth of the matter is that you were never, in fact, 2 Timothy 3 says, all who want to live for God in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I'm not saying go out there and put your chin out there and ask for it. I'm trying to say don't be surprised if it happens. Now, here's the thing. There's a pressure point that Satan is pushing hard on Jesus. He takes them all over. He questions, how are you going to be made known? This is the crux of the problem. In the very beginning, when Satan comes and tries to land a point of confusion, he probably will not try to get you deceived into doing something that's utterly wrong. He'll try to get you to do something that's right, but do it the wrong way. Because that's what he does. As a believer, I have to give permission for God to both give me direction and Demand obedience that I follow him the way he wants me to follow him. How many of you know from an argument that you can even make the right argument the wrong way, thereby invalidating your point? You can tell somebody about the love of God while yelling at them. That's not exactly the plan. And it's not going to really work. Satan wanted Jesus to do God's will in a way that was different than the way God had told him to do it do something spectacular was not in the book. What was Jesus' response? He whipped out the word of God in Matthew 4, and he just said, listen, I'm going to do God's will God's way. And, and, and look, here's what I'm trying to say. Our needs, you and I have needs that were pre-patterned by our creator. Those basic needs that we have, the enemy grabs them and then torques those needs to get us to fulfill our need in a different way than God told us. We have a need for companionship, but some of us will settle for sex. What's going to happen is we're going we're to get a basic need and then watch him twist it in our life. So what's the appropriate response when you find somebody in your life that you really want to be with, but they're outside the boundaries of what God said you should do? Well, the right response is go back to the Word and fall down and surrender to Jesus. That's the right response. 
What's the right response when somebody deeply hurts you and you want to haul off and belt them? Well, the right response is to take that hurt to the one who knows about hurt and look at the nails in his hands and feet and submit them to the Savior and let him get you through it. That's the right response. But the truth of the matter is the confusion is designed to get you to answer the right thing the wrong way. And that's one of the great punches. Jesus answered the confusion with biblical truth, and that's why you come week after week to learn it. But that's only the first punch. Remember what I said? When you get landed on one, plan on another one coming right after it. The second punch in Mark chapter 1 is found down in verse 14, and this is the punch called isolation. Don't let me lose you here. This is a very important one for someone in this room. Satan's not done. It says, verse 14, after John was taken into custody. Do you see that phrase? After John was taken into custody, Jesus came to the Galilee preaching the gospel of God. The next thing that happens, just as Jesus is trying to get his wind from the confusion of the temptation, he steps out and God goes after his cousin John. Why was John arrested? Well, it's kind of a weird Peyton Place story here, but basically it's Herod the Great has a bunch of sons, and like George Foreman named his kids George, 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 and George, Herod named his kids Herod, 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 and Herod. But for the women, he said Herodias. Thank you, big help. Anyway, so he, Herod Philip I, who is his oldest, he's going to bequeath him with a lot of power. So there's a young gal by the name of Fasiellus, and she decides to become his wife because she's really into power. She wants to be the queen. She knows she was born to be. However, at his death, Herod divested Herod Philip of everything and gave it to the other boys. So Fasiellus thought, well, this is a dead end. So she went to a party with one of the brothers, Herod Antipas, booted Herod Antipas' wife and took her spot. She's one of those. And here's the thing. As a result, what you have is basically John looking at this and going, um, that would be like wrong. Hello? Wrong. Well, how exactly is it wrong? You want it alphabetical? It's just wrong. And so as a result of all of that, John gets locked up. And then Salome, the daughter-in-law, comes and does a dance that would make everybody in the room blush. Herod Antipas says, hey, honey, thanks for the birthday present. I'll give you whatever you want. She says, you know what I really am looking for? I just need a silver platter with a head of John the Baptist. This really is going to do decoration for my room very well. I would run at that point, okay? These people are, something's wrong with them. But he delivers on his promise. Now, okay, so that's a bad story for John, we all agree. But why is that part of this story? Because Satan is using that to get a message to Jesus that the guy who endorsed him first publicly, the guy who gave him his first five disciples, the guy who is his cousin, his very flesh and blood family, that guy was locked up and is dead, and you are alone. Now, why is that important? Because it's the wildebeest that walks alone that gets eaten by the lion. Right now, in this room, I want you to know that there are some people that are suffering from the false idea that they are alone. What do you suppose happened when Jesus got the news that his family member was killed? Wouldn't you feel alone? Satan was hoping that Jesus would cower in a corner, but Satan might be a lion, but he's nowhere near the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus didn't do that. He did not 
cower in a corner. In verse 16 to 20, in chapter 1, it says he went and saw Andrew and Simon in verse 16 and said, follow me in verse 17. And in verse 19, he got James and John and they left their father Zebedee in verse 20 out of the boat and they all followed him. And when Jesus was told, you're alone, he went and found a team. That's what he did. He said, well, if I'm alone, I'll start a team. The attempt to isolate Jesus was met with calling a team around him. Listen to me. There are some young people right here in the sound of my voice that have been seduced into thinking that their doubts about their own identity and their gender and their suffering over a battle of ungodly desires are unique to them. They believe they're the only one that feels like they feel. That is a lie. You are not alone. In this room, are, I have it on good authority, there's lots of good sinners here. Watch your wallet. And here's what I'm telling you. We are all struggling with different things, and what the enemy wants you to do is get convinced that you are alone. But all of us, all of us since Adam and Eve have been struggling, and I have to get to the place where I say, my wants and my desires, I will not try to get Jesus to fit into them. I will fit them into his word and his plan. You know, it doesn't matter if the issue is fortune, pain, uh, fame, power, pleasure, the four gods of our age, fortune, fame, power, pleasure. It doesn't matter which it is. We struggle with these things. And we live in a time, guys, I'm seeing it all over the place. We live in a time when, when Americans have reduced the criterion of making decisions down to one criterion. Do I feel it? Listen, if you're going to make all the important decisions of your life based on how you feel, it will fail. It will fail our country, it will fail your family, and it will fail your life plan. People who are called by Jesus have met the truth. They know the truth. Can, can I say this lovingly? How Eve felt about the fruit was irrelevant. That's not the story. There is no justification to trying to make Jesus fit your will and call that Christian. It's not Christian. Christian is following him. Not stuffing him into my life plan and getting him to follow me. That's not what it is. And so when I look at this, I see that Satan was driving him to try and feel alone. He had tried to do some confusion. He tried to do isolation. Those didn't work. Remember, he's a combination puncher. So he's not over. Then he throws a third punch. Maybe some of you are experiencing this punch. It's called overload. Can I get an amen from the overloaded people? I want you to watch from this one because in verse 21 of chapter 1, he walks into the Capernaum synagogue on the Sabbath. He begins to teach. Verse 22 it says they were amazed at his teaching. Verse 23, a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit comes out and he starts saying, what business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Son of God, the Holy One of God. And Jesus said unto him, shut up. Be quiet and come out of him. Now wait a minute. What did the demon say that was wrong? He's out there announcing, this is Jesus. He is in fact the Holy One of God. Well, that's true. 
And verse 28 says, the news about him spread everywhere into the whole surrounding region. Why in the world didn't Jesus say, well, just keep on preaching, buddy? As long as you're telling the truth, I want my name and face on every billboard in the Galilee. Why can't I do that? Listen to me. Do you remember what Satan tempted him with? How will you be made known? What spectacular event will you pull off to get people to follow you? And Jesus said, I'm not doing it that way. So Satan provided the spectacular event to force him into it. And what he was trying to do was to get people to jump on board. The demons wanted to get Jesus so popular by early announcing who he was before Jesus was ready for it to happen. Listen to me. One of the key ways Satan works is to swamp the boat. So many needy people come down inside of it. All of a sudden, a ministry just gets started, and now there's all kinds of high-needs people. Listen to me. I'm not saying that you are a bother. If you have legitimate, honest, spiritual, and emotional needs, you're part of this ministry, and we want you here. But I am trying to say that more is not always better, and fame isn't always helpful. A ministry can grow too fast to grow well. A believer can, can take on too much to grow too deep. Big trees stand in strong winds because they had rooting time. And you've got to have it. What the demon was trying to do was get him too famous before he was ready for people to respond. So Jesus responded with a holy, shut up! Because when you do it against what God wants, that's God's feeling about it. Now, in the midst of all this, there's a guy that is in the room, and he's hurting because a demon's beating him up. And Jesus focuses on the hurting guy. In verse 25, kind of zeroes in. He focuses on the hurting guy, not the media notoriety. People are talking about his teaching. They're yapping about his powers. He doesn't take a month off to show for his newest best-selling scroll. Jesus instead focused on the guy and the guy who was getting hurt. And he takes care of the guy. And he doesn't get out there and say, no, I'll take interviews. Thank you, thank you. Jesus is unimpressed by his own spiritual ninja skills. He's much more interested in the guy who's hurting. See, sometimes the enemy will send confusion, but sometimes the enemy will drive some deep sense that you're alone. And sometimes the enemy will, will try to, to get you further along faster than you should go. All of these, all of these are to try and trip you up. His job isn't to make your life easy. It's to crush your testimony. It's to destroy your family. And one of the great temptations that happens when you get overloaded and take on too much is you start trading people for battling agendas. Listen to me. When churches start battling agendas, they stop talking about Jesus over the back fence to their neighbor and they pick up placards and they start to protest what their neighbors think. And that changes the essence of the church from a rescue organization to a political action committee. And that's not where we belong. There are cops and there are ambulance drivers. Stop being a cop and help the person who's sick. So the bottom line here is God's people have to seek hurting people. They have to love them. We bring Jesus and we bring a folding chair and sit down and listen. Because that's where the power of the gospel is unleashed. In personal behavior between people. That's what Jesus did. That's what we have to do. Oh, we're not done. There's one more punch. 
Punch number four is what I'll call disruption. Jesus gets back from the synagogue, and if you pick up the story in verse 29, right after he leaves the synagogue, he enters the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John with him, and as soon as they get there, Jesus doesn't even get his sandals off, and now there's a problem. Shock of all shocks. And Peter's mother-in-law has been sick with a fever. Now, she's the woman who makes lunch. She's the woman who keeps the hospitality moving. And so what the enemy is doing is picking on the team because he couldn't get to Jesus in frontal attacks. He couldn't knock him off of his game. But what he could do is slow down the progress by holding up the team. I pastored three churches over many years. I had three children. Nobody ever ran away except for on a Saturday night. You want to tell me why? Because if the enemy can't get to you, he'll get to the people around you. And he'll stir up the people around you to slow the progress down. Because his objective is to go no holds barred from anything he can. So some of you are thinking, well, the next verse says Jesus took her up, raised her up, took her by the hand, verse 31, and the fever left her. And she served them. What's the big deal? Listen to me. When the enemy hurts somebody you love or uses somebody you love and slows down the progress, it's not a question of just getting them better and moving on. Everything slows down. This is the problem. Moses' sister went off on him and it slowed the entire camp down and nobody could move. That's a pattern. It's the way the enemy works. Things that used to work stop. Relationships that used to be fluid are now questioned. You're trying not to put so much on them because they've been sick. It doesn't take a lot to stop people. Guys, look. You take one slip of one piece of paper and cut your finger and it will preoccupy you for days. Am I right? How many of you ever found a chip in your tooth with your tongue and you couldn't unfind it after you found it? And all day long, you're walking around like you're talking like that, and people are like, what's wrong with you? I found a ship in the back of my... It doesn't take much. All you need is a mosquito in your tent to keep you awake all night. So Peter's mother-in-law was now well. But look what happens. Verse 32, when evening came, after the sunset, they began bringing to him all those who were demon-possessed. Now there's a party you want to be invited to. And, and the whole city gathered at the door. And verse 34 says, he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. They're just slamming him, slamming him, slamming him. He can't even move. And Jesus' response once again was to look at the crowd one by one and start dealing with the issues. And he comes to a guy... In verse 42 and 43, who's a leper. Now, lepers aren't sick people like other people. When a leper gets healed, he's got to go back and report it to Jerusalem, which means they're going to dispatch somebody to figure out who's healing lepers. So Jesus looks at the guy, heals his leprosy, and in verse 43, he says this. He sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. Listen to what he says. See that you say nothing to anyone, but show yourself to the priest. Here's what the guy heard. Tell everybody. And so he goes out and tells everybody. And verse 45 says he proclaimed it freely. And Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. He forced Jesus into tent camping. Now he's trying to run a ministry from a tent with a generator. And in the end, he knew the Jerusalem authorities were going to come and look at him and dispatch critics. 
So now he's being scrutinized. Now he's being overworked. The boat is swamped. In every direction he's being pressed. And what does Jesus do? He does not avoid the trap. He lives it and keeps plowing. For somebody in the room, that's what you needed to hear this morning. You can stay, God, deliver me from this. But a lot of times God is saying, I want to deliver you in this. What you need is a stronger back. So here's the point. Jesus resisted the enemy. He grew the ministry. But you know what he lost? He lost his personal comfort. He lost his personal comfort because that's part of the program. Guys, here's what I want you to see. Satan is a combination puncher. He's not going to stop his attacks. But you can and must learn to move your feet. You can and you must learn to, to block his shots. 2 Corinthians 2 says we're not ignorant of the enemy's devices. Confusion, isolation, overload, disruption. These are very old ploys. He is going to tempt you to exalt your feelings over God's word don't do it a hundred million years from now you will remember you did you have God's spirit greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world you have God's word to guide you you have God's team to stand with you you are not alone but do not be surprised because there's a fight coming and the church of Jesus Christ needs to stop being surprised and stand up and understand Jesus did it from the beginning. This isn't new. It's just our time. You are the people God chose for this hour. You are the congregation for these days. Your children, your grandchildren are for this generation. And God makes no mistakes. Father, we're thankful. We're thankful that when we turn to you, what we see is a powerful set of punches by a vicious enemy. But when we look at all of your word, what we see is a magnificent God beyond description. And we recognize your power and we are ready this day to stand up and be counted as yours because we recognize our Savior went before us and gave us this wonderful gift of making disciples. And as we do it, we would follow you and not ourselves. We would lean into your choices and not make our own and fit you into them. Oh, Jesus, I pray this morning that your spirit would draw us to you and that we would, in this moment, check where we are in our decision-making process and where we are in holding off these punches. Because there's some who are walking around beat up by an isolation that isn't even real. And I pray that you would speak by your spirit right into their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Vineyard Church Weekly Message Podcast. We pray you were impacted by this message. God bless and see you next time.